Hey, hey, I'm Shay Keister, and I'm your host for the Casual Cattle Conversations podcast, the beef producer's place to explore new management practices. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the community. The Red Angus breed continues to grow in numbers and influence. Why? It's because of the quality cattle and the hardworking folks who produce them. Red Angus females are known as the beef industry's most favored female and have dominated the market for more than a decade. According to Superior Livestock data, Red Angus heifers command a $92 premium per head compared to all other breeds. The longevity, efficiency, and calm disposition of Red Angus females make them the ideal cow for today's producer. To explore opportunities through the Red Angus breed, visit redangus.org. Hey folks, it is Shay here, and thank you for listening to another episode of Casual Cattle Conversations. I appreciate having you here as always. Today we are visiting with CJ Blue about his story and his brother's story about their ranch and running on leased lands, grazing, conservation, and really management and just the amazing things that they are doing for themselves and the environment and how they got started. So there's a lot here that will resonate with many of you. I know I learned a lot and there's something for everyone in this episode. Before we get started, I do want to kind of plug that if you are interested in working on your ranch and improving your goals on from the business side, I should say working on your ranch from the business side, then I'd encourage you to join the 2024 Rancher Mind program that will close up soon, the first round, and it won't, it's not open all the time. It'll, it opens up uh, once a quarter for you to hop in. So if you are interested in joining our program and becoming a part of a group of progressive ranchers who are helping each other and helping themselves and connecting with experts on a regular basis to stay on track with their goals and improve their operations, then head to the show notes and uh, learn more about the Rancher Minds program, or you're welcome to message me and we can chat about it more there. But with that, let's visit with CJ. Well, CJ, it is great to have you on the podcast today. I know you've been on my list of people to have on the show for a while, so I'm glad we found a time with your busy schedule and my schedule to sit down and visit and talk a little bit about what you guys are doing on the cattle front and grazing front. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Shay. I appreciate it. So I've been following your story and I've heard you speak once or twice, I think, but I know maybe not everyone who's listening to this podcast is really aware of who you are and what you guys do. So would you mind talking a little bit about what your operation looks like today and where you're located? Sure. So um, CJ Blue, uh, my brother and I, actually my wife and three kids and my brother and I operate a family partnership that's primarily a commercial cow-calf operation, um, very south central Kansas. South of Hutchinson, northwest of Wichita is where I'm at. And then our brother Russell actually lives on a ranch west of Medicine Lodge. So we're spread out over three or four counties in south central Kansas. Um, The commercial cow-calf operation, red Angus cows, we like the red cattle uh, for a number of reasons. Um, And then we also have a a small backgrounding facility where we background our our own cattle. We take some custom cattle in and start some cattle with that. And then retain ownership on on all of our uh, home raised calves. Um, we do we do finish um, and have finished some cows here at our place before. Um, so primarily a commercial cat calf operation with with a small backgrounding and and, and some finish um, capacity. Um, our cows are are you know 
everything from grass and cake cows. And, and we try and do as much as we can on, on you know, without, um, you know, limit our cost and doing as cheap as we can. Um, so kind of the traditional grass and cake cows where the cows stay on range year round. Uh, we have that all the way to cows that are even like grazing irrigated perennial grasses uh, during the growing season. We do, we stockpile quite a bit of that stuff too and graze it in the off season, but then we graze a lot of cover crops. Um, try and, you know, they've got four legs and a mouth for a reason. So we try and graze as much as we can and feed as little as possible. So I have to ask because I'm in North Dakota. So my grazing season looks different than someone in South Central Kansas, which looks different than someone who's in Florida yeah. or maybe California. So what, like, how long is like your grazing season on a normal year? If there ever is such a thing as a normal year anymore, but typically what does that kind of look like? Well, it's, I mean, for the, for the mature cows, it would be 365 days a year. So those cows are going to graze year round. They're going to be out on mature cows that, um, and then, uh, you know, if it's native grass, those cows will get some, get some protein supplement. I mean, that's when I say grass and cake cows, and I, I probably shouldn't even say that anymore because we don't feed that much cake. Um, but they're going to get some protein as a supplement and we, we try and even limit that as much as possible. Um, the only thing that really ever gets not even pinned up, but kind of parked and fed would be our bread heifers. And so our bread heifer program, we do right here in Reno County. We, for one thing, we develop those, those heifers as yearlings. They'll graze as much uh, winter cereal and as much cover crop as we can after we get those, those heifers started, for example. Um, and then, and then we'll, we'll set those up to AI in the spring of the year. Um, still trying to limit feed those or, or not do much feeding on those heifers all the way until it's time for them to calve. And once they come in here to calve, like I said, they kind of get parked on grass traps that we've stockpiled that grass. Um, I'm really growing bedding more than I am anything else on those grass traps that we calve those heifers in. And, um, and then they get fed. They, those heifers, what we'll do with those and, and, and generally, so, um, 60 to 90 days is, a, is all the longer that they'll do that. We want to get them calved and then they, when we try and get them back out. Um, and a lot of times they'll be on either a winter cereal as a pair or they'll go on this perennial cool season grass that we have or a cover crop. But um, we do feed those at, at night. So we have the, those traps that we calve on. Um, we'll have a small a smaller pen that we can close off during the day. We can go ahead and feed on that at any time during the day. And then we don't do it perfect, but at about dark, we let those heifers in. And by doing that, we get about 80% of our calves born during daylight hours that way. But so to answer your question, you know, 365 days a year on the mature cows. And then like on a bred heifer, she is going to be pinned up or, or get fed while we're calving her. Um, but the rest of the time we're trying to graze. We try and graze, you know, same way when we wean our calves. So we'll wean those calves uh, about the end of August, first part of September. Um, and, and we're going to try and get them straightened out for 45, 60 days and then get them out grazing as quick as we can. Um, we'll calve, I should have said this earlier, but we will calve, uh, uh, the heifers are set up to start calving February 24th, I think is our AI date. And then the cows would be a full 30 days after that. So middle of March to April timeframe is when we calve. You've got a lot going on there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, everybody does. Yeah. We're no different than anyone else. It's, it's just, 
you know, it's not an easy business. If anyone thinks it's easy, I think they're fooling themselves, right? So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, earlier you said that you're spread out over several counties. Is mm-hmm. most of that leased land? Yeah, it it is. Uh, so we're 90, 95% of our land base is leased land. So, you know, I don't know how unique that is. I think it's somewhat unique. Um, you know, that creates challenges that anyone who leases land understands probably. Um, but, but yeah, definitely, um, our land base is, is mostly leased land. And, um, you know, we work with really good landowners that have given us an opportunity to have a land base to do this. Um, we've, you know, one of the ways I guess we've differentiated ourselves from the next person that may lease lease that land, um, and, and not all of it, you know, not all of it works out, um, but we look for partnerships and, and landowners to work with that have the same long-term vision that we do. Uh, you know, I've said a number of times that uh, at the end of the day, we we really are in the land rehabilitation business and the cows are kind of a tool to help us get there um, because that's what we do. That's what we specialize in. And, and like I said, that's given us opportunities that I think we wouldn't have had otherwise. And one of the challenges with that though is, especially on leased land is and, and my brother and I had to come to this realization early on that, you know, we're going to spend some money on something or we're going to spend time and blood, sweat and tears getting something straightened out and fixed up. And then, you know, the landowner is going to decide to sell it or whatever. A family may sell it and that kind of thing. And that's definitely happened. Um, but the key for us in this deal is to make sure that we've got partnerships and landowners, like I said, that have the same long term vision that we do. And that's everything, you know, it's primary land stewardship, but a whole lot of other things too. So. So when you're looking at, you say you're in the land rehabilitation business, which I think is a very accurate statement for a lot of what cattle producers are doing in the grazing lands that are available. What is kind of your first step? Say if you take on a new piece of leased land and know you need to rehabilitate it and improve the land quality, soil quality, forage, whatever yeah. it may be. What are where do you kind of start yeah. with that? Well, for us, I mean, it's going to be just an assessment of the range. More if we're, if we're talking native range, it's going to be assessment of native range. If it's if it's some crop land that you know we're kind of notorious for taking on some poor type crop land and and getting it converted to perennial grass or cover crops and then grazing it, but. On the native range, just, you know, get a range inventory, get a grazing plan put together and start to, you know, just stock it right. Uh, There's a lot of this stuff that, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, but a lot of times it's overgrazed. There's invasive species out there. Um, A lot of times, you know, that's trees, you know. Um, So we'll get a plan put together, a grazing plan put together and then we'll leverage every resource we have, you know, as far as funds to help us do that, you know, a big fan of the equip program and working with NRCS um, in our area. We also have the Cheney Lake watershed that is particularly interested in making sure that we keep as much phosphorus and keep a clean lake uh, for uh, Cheney Lake, which is where the city of Wichita sources, I think about 50% of their drinking water from. And so we have an opportunity there to work with, the Cheney Lake watershed. Um, there's some funds available for us to to implement some environmental stewardship things that way too. So 
that's generally the first thing that first one of the first steps that take place takes place. So with that, when you know you said earlier on a couple times that you really work towards finding landowners who have the same vision as you do for a specific piece of land, but are they you know when you come to them or are working with them and express your vision and how you want to improve that land, do they become more? willing to help pay for any improvements or because I know that can vary so much depending on who you're renting land from. Some maybe want to help a little bit. Some don't want to put any money into it. Like what's been your experience there? It's, it's all over the board. So we have some where, um, you know, the, the landowner has the means to make the investment that needs to be made to help us achieve that long-term vision and they're completely bought in and willing to make that investment. You know, that's, that's from one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is where the landowner says, I don't want to spend any money on it. And so you, if you can think about that, one is probably going to happen a lot quicker than the other. And so, you know, when, when funds are limited and, and we'll do what we can, but it's, you know, it, it's, we also have to be able to have a, you know, be profitable at the end of the day too. So, we'll do what we can and then we'll get help from USDA or NRCS and others to be able to help, help achieve that. But to answer your question, I would say it's from one end of the spectrum to the other. I, I think, you know, one of the challenges that you have sometimes is, is even working with landowners or even landowners that would be like the next generation. So they, they've taken that land on and, and maybe they have different goals than what the generation before them had, which is, which is great. Um, and then a lot of times what they discover is that, you know, there really hasn't been a whole lot going on out there for, you know, maybe not the whole generation before, but at least for, you know, the last, the last years. And a lot of times there's, there's some catching up to do. And so, you know, just land is, is, it's not necessarily like an annuity that just always pays out there. There's, you know, there's there's maintenance, there's things that you have to do to it to make sure that it stays in shape. And, and, you know, if you're a landowner and you own the land and, and you're leasing it out, I think the key is to make sure that you find a lease or somebody who's going to rent that, that, that has, you know, that has the kind of stewardship and, and environmental um, things in mind that you, that you do. Um, because sometimes I, unfortunately, I think some of this lease land just gets, you know, collects a rent check every year and, and nobody cares really about what's going on out there. And you see that a lot. How do you think more cattle producers can connect with landowners to make them care more about what's happening to the land going on and make it more than just, you know, maybe I inherited this piece of land and I just want to collect the check off of it well i think you know what you know what do you call it the the regenerative craze that we're getting into now wouldn't necessarily call it a craze i think it's a good thing but um you know as we as we start to as we in agriculture start to talk more about the benefits of of, of grazing animals on the land of managing the land appropriately so that we can start to regenerate that i mean like i said we're in the land rehabilitation business and a big portion of that it truly is rehabilitating it um you know i someone's asked me before what, what does that look like or what do you mean by that and the best way i can describe it is to try and put it we we, we feel like we're doing the right kind of job or doing a good job when we can 
make that land look as close as it did before man laid eyes on it. And grazing animals are absolutely a part of that. I mean, this grassland and rangeland was has evolved over eons of time with with ruminant foraging animals on it. And so if we can use the cows to mimic that and we um, we get our stocking rates and our stocking density like it needs to be to kind of mimic the, you know, the roaming buffalo herds before our cows were here. And, um, you know, that's, that's all part of it anyway. So. So I want to go back to, you mentioned that you're kind of known for taking maybe lower quality cropland and converting it into perennial forage. Is that correct? Yeah. How yeah. has, how has that gone over? I mean, well, what's that process been like? How has it been received by landowners? Because I, you know, it's also the other end of the spectrum is seen where maybe land that should never be cropland gets turned over and put into cropland. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, so tech, really the, the stuff that we're dealing with, in my mind, never should have been broken out to begin with and farmed, right? It should still be in native grass. I think that's the case in, in many areas. And then sometimes, like you said, even, even today, you see some stuff maybe get broken out that shouldn't, but um, <clears throat> so it's, it's different than, you know, we're in dryland wheat country in this area. Kansas is the largest, you know, wheat producing state in the nation. And so there's that, and, but, you know, crops continue to transition in our area to, to more row crops too on some of that stuff. But um again, you know, we'll leverage the resources we have available to us. So we've used the EQIP program and stuff like that. Cheney Lake Watershed also helps us with some programs and, and some things that we want to implement as far as getting water sources or maybe even some, some infrastructure there as far as fences go and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's, you know, getting a perennial established on some of that uh, cropland is part of the, the, the biggest drawback to that is you're going to have a year or two where it, you're not getting anything, you know, it's non-productive, you know, because you mm -hmm. depend on what you end up doing for perennial grass. You want to get that established before it's not like you can plant it and then turn cattle right out on it. So you got to get that your grass established and that can be, that can be a challenge. The drought that we've had the last couple of years here, we've, we've had a couple that we've converted, tried to get some cool season grass established on some tough ground. And that hasn't, you know, that hasn't been real fun with the drought, but um, you know, the other the other part of that that I really haven't talked is just the economics of it. I mean, part of sustainability and all of those things is the fact that we need to be profitable going forward. Mm -hmm. And so if I look at what some of that land, uh, you know, revenue wise and, and what we could net from it bottom line, and that's actually where, where some of this started. I mean, as much as I'd love to say that we did this because we want to, and we do, we want to do the right thing as far as being environmental stewards, but, it, but we also um, looked at the economics of it. And a lot of this was decision based off of, off of economics. Um, you know, we could have, we could lose money trying to grow crops on it, or we could get a perennial um, grass established out there. Um, the rent is the same and we can actually net something, you know? So um, that's, it, it's, it's been a good thing. I mean, and I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, we're, we're doing more for that soil than we would trying to do, you know, grow crops on it. And then throw, even if we threw a cover crop in there every now and then, if we can get a perennial established on there and we can intensively manage that with cattle, you know, with, with you know, high stocking density and long periods of rest, then I think we truly are accomplishing something from a, from a soil standpoint.
Increased profitability and informed management decisions go hand in hand. Herd Dog is a data analytics company that makes it possible for cattle producers to collect herd information efficiently. Their smart ear tag monitors cattle 24-7. Think of it as a Fitbit for cattle. Herd Dog fits the needs of a variety of operations as it can find sick animals days before humans can detect illness, and it also identifies which cows are in heat. Best of all, the tags have a high visibility light to help you sort out which cattle you are looking for. Head to their website, which is linked in the show notes, or contact them for a consultation to see how Herd Dog can work for you. Herd Dog is spelled H-E-R-D-D-O-G-G. That's two D's and two G's. Where did you get your background in grazing management, land management? I mean, did you grow up in the beef industry? Did you take any extra classes, find continuing education? Was it mentors? How have you learned this process and got interested in it too. Yes. Yes. To all of those. <laughs> so grew up with it. I mean, we, we always were a commercial cow calf operation and we, you know, we grazed a lot of stuff and, and we actually started doing cover crops on some cropland before cover crops were popular. We flew turnips on to irrigated corn, you know, probably 30 years. Well, yeah, 30 years ago or more. Um, and we were doing it just, you know, just to get the grazing benefit out of it. So had some experience with that. Um, you know, obviously had range management classes and that kind of thing in college, but just, you know, part of it is as you get started in this business and then as you go through it is building your team. And I've made that remark to people a number of times, even younger people, and it's not necessarily about you know, when I think about building your team, it's about hiring people and having the right people around you. But for me, my team is just those consultants, those mentors, those people that you rely on for advice and that kind of thing. And it's everything from a nutritionist to, um, you know, to, to a banker, to uh, a couple of folks that actually work for NRC, range management folks that work for NRCS. Um, it, it, it's interesting. I've seen scenarios where that relationship with NRCS and some of those range management folks and the rancher can be adversarial and they, you know, they don't get along or they don't agree with what NRCS is suggesting. And I know it, it depends solely probably on, on the people, I think, you know, personalities and relationships have something to do with it, but um, we've benefited from it. I mean, we're, we're better because, because we've gotten involved with NRCS and we've, you know, we've started, when I started doing this, we didn't, we didn't have grazing plans. You know, we didn't have a, a plan and, and now everything has that. So, um, you know, we've, we've gotten better at it just because of the people we've surrounded ourselves with. If you could go back and start over and do it all again, what would you do differently thinking about your early years? Um, well, that's a really good, I, I probably, implemented some of the things we did at a faster pace. Um, you know, some of the decisions we made were decisions, like I said, based on economics or out of necessity because maybe our land base changed. And so, you know, we shifted gears and, and, and did things a little bit differently. So I wish we would have started, started some of the things we implemented earlier in my career. That's a, I always like that question, the end. A lot of times the answer is similar to that of committing faster yeah. and just, um, yeah, just committing and 
going for it. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, I you know I think mm-hmm. it, it, and I I don't know. Is the older I get, the less I know too. So that's probably <laughs> you know just re- relying on other people. And then another mentor of mine at one, he always used to say that you know that he stole every good idea he's ever had, and he is so right. I mean, you know, it's not like we're wizards at this and we've got it all figured out. I mean, it's just part of it is trial and error and then listening to people that have done it before. And, and when you see a good idea, steal it, use it, you know? So yeah. Make it fit your system. Yeah. So what were, what are kind of the main risks that you've experienced on your operation and how do you manage those risks? Whether it's with the grazing or maybe even marketing or, how are you managing yeah. this kind of your operation? Well, there. So first thing I think of is is drought. I mean, so we've been dealing dealing with drought a couple of times. I, you know, we're we're fortunate in a number of ways. You know, you think about some of the more arid parts of the U.S. and this is you know they deal with this. This is just what they you know they do it all the time. Um, we went through a multi year drought in 2010 to 2013. Really, was kind of that time frame for our area. And it was the worst drought we had had since like the 30s. And then and then for this area, the 50s were actually drier than the 30s. But um, I made the mistake at that point of saying, well, I think every generation has to live through one of these. And, you know, this one must be mine. So I did it. I'm done. Hopefully I don't have to do this again. Well, fast forward now to the last couple of years. And we, you know, had dry periods in between here and there, but but not those extended years. And, and now we've gotten into a situation where, we have and had an extended drought. Um, the one thing that's different than than like the 2011, 12 time frame is um, that we've we've had some periods of reprieve in here for our area. It's been spotty, but um, so you know probably learned you know when we were dealing with that back in 2010, 11, um, we weaned early, you know, and what that taught us is we probably should have been weaning early all along you know, maybe not quite as early, you know, not like not, not in July, but, um, I think our, the average age in our calves is like an April, I think it's like mid April 10th kind of a date. I'll just use that. Um, but we're weaning those calves the end of August, mm-hmm. getting them off the cows, even in a year that it's not dry, that just helps us maintain body condition on those cows. And you just don't, you know, you don't have to supplement as much, that kind of thing. Um, so early weaning was one of them that, the other one that I think has been a challenge and I talked about, you know, you asked about the the land base and the fact that it's leased land, um, the way that it's leased, I think is, you know, we've, we've gotten better at leasing that land by the animal unit instead of based off of, you know, a per acre basis where no matter how it's stocked or if it's a dry year and you still have to write a check for that, a rent check for that can be, can be a challenge. Um, so managing the risk that way, the drought risk through how that, to that how that land is leased is one way to work with that um you know we try and stockpile and stock accordingly so that so that we can we can survive a drought and go through a drought um i also would say that you know the one thing i didn't talk about and i talked about the background facility and that kind of thing and we graze as much of our own cattle but I mean, that's, that's a yearling program. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we went from a, um, a calf fed program on our steers to a grass yearling. So, um, 
you know, we've done our heifers that way for years. We developed those heifers and then even the non-exposed heifers would graze and then go to the feed yard at the same time that we found our open heifers in August. So they'd all go together. We basically do the same thing with steers. So those steers are going to graze from the time they're weaned all the way till about the first part of June or July. Um, so they'd be long yearlings um, whenever they go into the feed yard. The one thing that does for us is just give us flexibility, obviously. So if we're dry, then like we did this past year and the year before that, um, we wanted that grazing for our cows. So the calves went to the feed yard earlier, or, you know, if we have some, some feed stuff, then we'll, you know, we'll feed that calf instead of feeding a cow. But um, going forward, yearlings will definitely be a part of our program. And I'd say even to the degree where um, we'll either own some yearlings, you know, buy purchased yearlings, or we'll take some cattle in um, just because we want that flexibility. Uh, trying to restock, you know, for the cow-calf guy, you know, then you get into genetics and everything else, which I'm a huge believer mm -hmm. in. I, you know, I love the genetic part of this business, but it, it really is, is a bad situation to build your cow herd up just in time for a drought sell your cow herd down and then spend the next 10 years building your cow herd up just in time for the next drought to start again and sell down again. So trying to break that cycle and, and get out of that, I think is, is a way to help manage that. Not only from the drought side, but just manage the investment that you have in, in your genetics. Um, so there's that part of it. The marketing side of it too is I, I'm not a great marketer, so I don't have any, you know, I rely on other people to help me. Um, we do some options on cattle and that kind of thing, but we, we're not, you know, we try and protect probably the black swan event more than we do anything else just to, just to protect the, you know, the bottom falling out on these cattle, but we also own our cattle a long time. So, um, one, one of the thing, that's another reason why, you know, talk about the yearlings and managing the drought that gives you some flexibility there. The other, the other thing that a yearling program does, you know, you turn your money a little faster. That's probably one of the, most challenging things with the cow calf operation, especially if you retain ownership like we do, is um, you know you're waiting a long time on your money. So, so it's you, your wife, kids, and your brother. How are you? Yeah. Do you kind of have somewhat designated roles and responsibilities within the operation, or does everyone do a little bit of everything? How do you navigate that side of the family business? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we have roles and responsibilities defined and everybody kind of likes their, you know, finds their sweet spot. Um, today it happens a little more naturally probably, but we went through a period of time when my dad was still in the operation. So it was my brother and I and my dad where we actually, you know, we had to go get a third party to help us define that. So um, some of that, you know, family dynamic and, and part of it was succession planning too, but you know, none of those conversations are easy with any family or any operation, let me put it that way. Um, and so we got a third party to help us help 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 us with that. They help define our roles. Um, can you create a succession plan? And that's actually when we created the the formalized partnership. Prior to that, we weren't, you know, we had our own three entities and we were we were owned separately but working together and it was, mm -hmm. you know, it just wasn't organized very well. But we had to get a third party to help us through that. Um which I would also say, and I get on my soapbox to do this, but it, I think it's a it's an epidemic in our in industry. Actually, the challenge that we have um, when it comes to just succession planning and and talking about the next what's going to happen with the next generation. 
I think it's crazy. There's some families that are awesome at it. And there's some families that just, you know, aren't that worried about it. And it's, it's really, really unfortunate. I admire those families that are able to have and accumulate a really good land base, a big land base, and be able to keep it in the family from generation to generation to generation. I think that's, that's the legacy that maybe all of us strive for. Um, and I'm going to say, you know, that doesn't happen without, without at least talking about it. I, I think it's incredible that I know of a lot of families that just don't talk about it until, until they have to. And usually that's not a good time to talk about it. So. No, usually you're right. It's usually not a, if you have to talk about it, it's usually not the right time and probably should have happened years prior. And yeah, that's something I, mean, I see a lot of too. I mean, I'm the fifth generation in my family, my husband's the fifth in his, and we've got friends in ag. And it's really interesting as the younger generation, as we start talking about that, how families handle things differently. And yeah, like you said, some are great at it. Some are terrible at it. And but that's tough too, because you have to have someone in the next generation who wants to take it on. That's, that's right. And if goals change, if goals are different, then that makes it tough to want to take it on. If maybe you don't want to acquire all that land mass or whatever. You're right. You're absolutely right. And, 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 you know, if someone isn't there, that's great. But I, I think the other challenge is even if, even if you have the next generation doesn't want to, I think you still have to have a conversation about whether, you know, so, so what is, you know, what does dad want with this? So, you know, when, mm-hmm. when dad's gone, you know, does he want to see this stay together or is it, is he okay if it gets broken up and the kids sell it? You know, I also just working with, because we lease as much land as we do and a lot of it's going through this generational change, you just see some of this kind of happen. And, and, and unfortunately a lot of times yeah, the conversation doesn't happen until somebody dies, you know, and it's just, then people aren't, you know, a lot of times the best thing for the land at that point doesn't happen. And, and, and that's what I think is you see, you see people, you know, two or three generations back, even put their blood, sweat and tears into, into this land and they put it together and, and they accumulate what they accumulate over their, over their lifetime. And especially for somebody like me where the land base hasn't come easy, you look at that and, and, you know, it breaks your heart sometimes when you see the next generation get it. And the first thing they do is break it up and sell it or, you know, mm-hmm. and um, you always wonder when the first person that bought that and they spent their lifetime putting it together, if that's, if that's truly what they wanted. So yeah, not to get on that soapbox and down that rabbit hole, but I, I do think it's an epidemic in our industry. I think it's something that, um, we're not talking enough about families don't work on enough. Well, it's a communication thing. There's a lot of emotion tied to it. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, yeah there's, it's yeah. Uh, I do a lot of podcast episodes on that topic too. And each one's a little different and yeah. it's, it's important. <laughs> it is, it is. And it's not easy to talk about at all, but yeah, well, CJ, I really appreciate the conversation that we've had so far. And before we wrap up is there anything else you'd like to share with those who are going to listen whether that's about the beef industry in general or managing land cattle any final thoughts i i don't know i mean i don't have any i'm not that wise so i don't have that much words i don't have that many words of wisdom or (laughs) um, you know i've said i've had the opportunity to get in front of um you know, young producers in the past and, and, um, 
generally what, you know, what I tell them is, um, is have a plan, build your team, like I said earlier, and don't be afraid to go where the opportunities are. They're not always going to be across the road or, you know, next door. Um, so that's kind of the approach that we've taken. And, you know, the plan doesn't always have to be written down or spelled out, but at least have a vision in your mind of where you want to go and what you want to do. And so for whatever that's worth, that would be, that would be something I would tell young people when they get started. That's worth a lot. Thank you very much for uh, joining me for a conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's a wrap on that one, folks. Thank you for tuning in today and joining in on the conversation. Be sure to take this a step further and take the advice you learned and implement it on your operation. If you want to have a conversation about it, head over to my social media and send me a DM by following at Cattle Convos and connecting with me there. Have a great day.